Hello, passengers. Thank you for choosing Flight 305 to Seattle. We will be departing shortly, so please find your seat and get comfortable. A plane. This is where you wanted to go. Really? The entire universe at your fingertips, and you wanted to be on a plane? No, it's not the plane itself, it's who's on the plane. Also, your voice kinda sounds a little different. Why isn't it like as funny sounding anymore? Because you guys are still arguing over the last time a deity visited this place. I have to blend in with you humans, or else my cover would be blown. But, on to the more pressing matter. Who, on this plane, could be so important that you would travel through space and time to see them? You see the guy behind us? That's who. You brought me all this way to see Tom Hiddleston? Hello everyone, my name is Matt and this is Cold Case Chase, a show where I recount unsolved and cold cases. It feels really good to be back for season 2, you can't even imagine it. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the Norjack case, or also more well known as the D.B. Cooper hijacking, a case that has its own little resurgence lately from the Loki series, though I doubt that Tom Hiddleston had anything to do with it. But let's go ahead and dive right in. On November 24th, 1971, in Portland, Oregon, a man going by the name Dan Cooper would purchase a one-way ticket to Seattle, Washington. He boarded Northwest Flight 305 along with everyone else, where he ordered a bourbon and soda and had a smoke. When the flight was about to take off, Cooper would make his move. He handed a note to a flight attendant, Florence Schaffner. Schaffner thought it was just the man hitting on her and put the note in her pocket. However, Cooper then leaned in and said this. <laughs> Miss, you better take another look at that note. I have a bomb. Schaffner sat down next to him and read the note. Though, what the note said has never been 100% confirmed. Florence Schaffner has said that it told of the bomb. Cooper would then open his briefcase to show the stewardess long red sticks resembling dynamite to show how serious he was. After this, he told Schaffner his demands and to bring them to the captain. I want $200,000 in negotiable American currency delivered to me by 5 p.m. Put it in a knapsack. I want two back parachutes and two front parachutes. When we land, I want a fuel truck ready to refuel. No funny stuff or I'll do the job. When the flight was fully airborne, Schaffner went to go tell the captain of Cooper's demands, while another attendant by the name of Tina Mucklow sat with Cooper and used the phone in the back of the plane to communicate between the two. At this point, the plane circled in a holding pattern near the Seattle airport while people scrambled to attain Cooper's demands. $10,020 bills were collected from the Seattle First National Bank, and the parachutes were grabbed from the Seattle Sky Sports. After two extra hours in the air, the plane finally landed in a remote section of the tarmac. When the plane landed, the exchange of money and hostages occurred. The money was handed to Tina Mucklow, 
who gave it to Cooper along with the parachutes. Then, everyone exited the plane safely besides Cooper and the crew. It is to be noted that people on the flight did not know that it had been hijacked. It was at this point that Cooper's new demands came through. Tell the captain our destination is Mexico City. We're to fly with landing gear down, flaps at 15 degrees and below 10,000 feet. The cabin lights must be turned off and the rear stairways to remain extended. However, two of these demands could not be met. For a trip to Mexico City, there would need to be a refueling spot, as well as the stairway needed to be retracted. Cooper would then discuss potential refueling spots, as well as agree to keep the stairway up as long as he was taught how to extend it. The captain and Cooper would agree on Reno, Nevada as the refueling spot and would take off only two hours after the refueling in Seattle. Tina Mucklow would sit with Cooper during this portion of the flight. However, Cooper would tell her to head to the cockpit only five minutes into the flight. He told Mucklow the following. Go to the cockpit. From now on, I'm not to be disturbed. Uh, yes, yes, sir. She did as Cooper demanded. And according to her, The last time I saw Cooper, he was standing in the middle of the aisle. He looked like he was ready to jump. Tina would lock herself in the cockpit with the rest of the crew and continued the flight until they landed safely in Reno. They all ventured into the cabin, but Cooper was nowhere to be found. The aft stairway had been extended mid-flight and had been damaged upon landing. So that meant that at some point during this flight, Dan Cooper jumped. FBI agents were soon on the scene and investigated the plane to find close to nothing in terms of evidence. 66 unidentified fingerprints and his clip-on tie. They would also find two of the four parachutes that Cooper had requested. The FBI would go on to do several interviews of the crew and passengers to try to see if they could identify this mystery man. He was a white man, about 40 years old. He had dark hair and was clean shaved. He was about 5'9", but he was no taller than 6 foot. He was well built, I'd say about 160 pounds. He was a troublesome young fella. Kept making demands to me and I kept trying to keep the passengers safe. He wore sunglasses and he wore a suit. That's all I can tell you. Cooper would then also don a pair of black sunglasses, which are visible in the now famous composite sketch of him. With interviews out of the way, it was time to mount a search. Cooper's approximate area was calculated by the last known time of contact between the crew and their captor, along with what the crew suspected was the plane shaking because the plane's rear staircase was being lowered. Cooper also did not choose the flight plan. He was getting frustrated with how long everything was taking in Seattle and told the pilot the following. Let's get the show on the road, shall we? So that means that the pilot chose the flight plan and chose to fly along the Victor 23 airway. With all of these facts, the estimated location of Cooper would be about 25 miles north of Portland, Oregon. Once they found the area, the search was on. 
Helicopters, ground troops, airplanes, and many more were called upon to look for this one man. However, searching this area was not easy. With the large mountains and dense forests that were searched, finding a man wearing a suit was seeming to be like a needle in a haystack. Not to mention the freezing weather in Oregon at that time of year. No evidence was found of Cooper, nor the serial numbers on any of the bills that he had stolen in the initial search. No clues were found until February of 1980, when a boy by the name of Brian Ingram was building a campfire at Tina Bar in Oregon. As he was digging, he stumbled upon roughly 6,000 of the missing bills. The family brought the bills to the FBI, and sure enough, they matched the serial numbers on some of the missing bills. This, however, raises one big question. How did the money get there? Looking at the initial drop zone, there was no river that could carry the money to Tina Bar, which means one of two things. Either the drop zone was wrong, or Cooper survived his fall and brought it there at a later date. Now, to even investigate the possibility that Cooper survived his fall was a shock to many. We had figured that the situation of his jump alone would have been enough to assume that he had not survived. He would have not been able to see where he was landing. There was a rainstorm that night as well. Cooper was also not in any attire to be jumping. He was wearing a suit with an overcoat and dress shoes, not to mention that his parachute was non-steerable. Speaking of parachutes, the FBI had contemplated sabotaging the chutes, but with Cooper requesting four chutes, two front and two reserve, the FBI was afraid that Cooper would take a hostage with him, so they decided against it. However, in the FBI's infinite wisdom, they mistakenly gave him a dummy chute. That dummy chute would actually be the one that Cooper would take with him on his fall. When looking for a possible motive for this crime, Tina Mucklow would ask Cooper why he was doing what he was doing. Cooper would laugh and tell her this. <laughs> it's not because I have a grudge towards your airline. It's just because I have a grudge. The Northwest flight just happened to be at the right place at the right time. So it seemed at this point, we knew nothing of D.B. Cooper other than the name that he gave us. Now let's get into our suspects. Suspect number one is Kenneth Christensen. Kenneth Christensen became a suspect in 2003 when his brother Lyle was watching an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Lyle cited a deathbed confession from his brother who said to him this. There's something you should know, but I cannot tell you. Christensen would also have a few things that would connect him to this case but they are interesting to connect. He was a paratrooper in World War II. Then he would go on to work at Northwest Airlines as a mechanic and a flight attendant. He was left-handed, which many suspect that Cooper was. He was found to have over $200,000 in his bank account after he died, and he was 45 when the skyjacking occurred. However, Florence Schaffner has said that though Christensen does bear a small resemblance to Cooper, Christensen has far less hair. The large sum of money found in his bank accounts was further investigated and was potentially from him selling off land at the end of his life. So it is unlikely that Christensen was Cooper, 
However, we might not know without his true deathbed confession. Our second suspect is Dwayne Weber, who became a suspect after his deathbed confession to his wife. Weber allegedly said, I, I have a secret to tell you. I'm Dan Cooper. After her husband's passing, Joe Weber would recount a few details that seemed to oddly connect her late husband to the case. Dwayne had told me that he got a knee injury while jumping out of a plane. He used to have a nightmare about leaving fingerprints on a plane. There was also an old bank bag and plane ticket he held on to. I, I, I thought nothing of it. Not only this, but Dwayne Weber was also a military veteran, matched the physical description and age range, and had a criminal record. However, Weber's DNA and fingerprints did not show up at the crime scene, so it is inconclusive if he was our famed Sky Pirate. Our third suspect is Richard Floyd McCoy, who became the prime suspect after he committed a similar crime in 1972. Looking at the two cases side by side, you can see the similarities starting to pile up. McCoy used a fake name like Cooper was suspected of doing, used a fake explosive like Cooper was also suspected of doing, both demanded four parachutes, and both wrote notes to express their demands, which both used the term no funny stuff. With all of these similarities, the FBI looked even further into McCoy and found that he served in the Vietnam War as a helicopter pilot. However, one big difference in the two's plans was that McCoy came prepared with a skydiving helmet and other proper attire, while Cooper jumped out in his suit and loafers. As well, McCoy was only 29 when the hijacking occurred, well out of the suspected age range of Cooper. McCoy was also sloppier in his crime, not keeping a low profile like Cooper did, and even forgetting to reclaim one of his notes, unlike Cooper, who tidied up after himself. Up until his death, Richard Floyd McCoy denied being D.B. Cooper. So who was this mystery man? We may never know. You know he's right over there. You could just ask him. Oh man, why didn't I think of that? Hmm, you think he'd just tell us who he is? This man is about to commit one of America's most unsolvable crimes, and you think he's just gonna tell us all of his personal information. Maybe I should ask his social security too. Well, human, you'll never know until you try. Excuse me, sir. I know he's here. This is what he said season two's pilot episode was gonna be. Shane, old buddy, old pal, how you been? Matt. You. Oh, hi there, Alpha. How very not nice to see you again. Human, it's time to go. What? No! We're about to solve the crime! I'm about to find out who D.B. Cooper is! Attention, everyone! The man behind us has a bomb! <laughs> Come on, human, let's go. No, they got away! We cannot let them get far, Shane. The person he was with? Oh, he's up to no good. What do you mean? He is Time Lord Omega. And like the name suggests, the more he travels through time, the more time he takes away from the universe. It took all my power to seal him away once. Now, we are in big trouble. <sighs> 
Thank you one and all for listening to season two, episode one of Cold Case Chase. Really quick, I don't want to get too emotional here because I absolutely freaking love you guys. You guys are awesome. Just letting you guys know that this is an absolute dream come true doing a season two, which I uh, can, I've said I've said it before. I didn't think it was going to happen, but it's here. So I hope you guys enjoyed season two, episode one, the daring descent of D.B. Cooper. And as I travel through time, I'd like to thank the actors who did such a wonderful job as well as everybody who provided music and sound effects inside of this episode and make sure to take a look at all of the other raving lunatic media stuff we have sci-fi malady which even though they sent me back in time i guess i still like them and we also have shane who's currently chasing me back through time miss him i miss him a lot and we also have the new show a case of the chills with layla so go ahead, take a listen to those, and make sure that you leave a five-star review. And I'll see you guys next time on Cold Case Chase.